service during Holy Week, I invite you to take your worship guide and then to take your hymnal and to turn to page 186, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It will be our opening hymn today. Lay your worship guide within the hymnal and stand with me, please, as we respond together with strength to encourage those that are around you. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor requite us according to our iniquities. What shall I render to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. you to pray with me. God, we thank you for the gift of this day, and we thank you for this week and for all that it means for us as your people. 
Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be at work among us as your word is proclaimed later in the service, as truth is sung over us, Lord, that you would give us hearts that can feel, ears that can hear, eyes that can see. You would help us to remember the good news, the gracious work you've done for us, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We offer this prayer in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So glad that each of you is here today. I gave Cameron a lengthy introduction yesterday. Um, most of you know him, but in addition to being a dad, uh, um, a husband, and a pastor, he's also an author um, who's written several things, books, also um, all over the web. You just go search Cameron Cole, you'll find his resources. But he's working on, or I guess almost completed, a new uh, book. Um, Cameron and I were at an event in Brookwood Forest. He was studiously trying to be by himself and work. And of course, I ran over to him and started talking. And he was telling me um, about a new book that he, um, Lord willing, they'll publish next, next year. It's called Heavenward, How Eternity Can Change Your Life on Earth. Um, it's a topic that all of us, I think, are interested in. Um, not only what our afterlife means for us and our hope that we have through our faith in Christ, but also how that impacts how we live here. So Lord willing, maybe it'll work out next year that Cameron can come back and be with us and talk some about um, the topic of that book. Best way to support local authors is to buy their books. <laughs> so, and write a review on Amazon. And write a review. <laughs> so if, if, we, if we're good hosts this, this week, his sales will go through the roof on Amazon. So go out there and support. Um, two of my good friends are going to come and, and uh, share a message in song, Vince Blackerby and Kelly Hatley. And after that, we will hear Cameron um, gladly. Tis 
Uh, today our text is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. I'm so grateful to be back. I was really, I was kind of settling down last night and thinking about what a great day I had here yesterday and how, how warm it was. I felt like I was coming back to hang out with a group of friends again. So I just really appreciate this opportunity. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith it is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The word of the Lord. Mighty Father, by your Holy Spirit, we pray that we would see and hear, know and trust, love, worship, and glorify your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the greatest dangers in life can be the underestimation of problems and the undervaluing of solutions. Uh, before I worked at the Church of the Advent, uh, they were on a mission trip up in uh, western North Carolina near Boone. They would partner with a church there and they would do home refurbishment projects where they would go into the valleys and up in mountains and they would you know, fix roofs and uh, and, and do repairs in the homes and, and, and so they, a lot of the people that were coming from that church were just good old fashioned mountain people, gritty. And so they were on the work site and uh, my predecessor was observing this 75 year old man um, who had good skills when it came to construction. But he was handling the uh, saw uh, kind of loose and fast. Uh, wasn't necessarily using the techniques that were recommended um, uh, by, you know, when they did their training uh, on, uh, on construction. And so he, he made the comment, Tom, you, you think you need to maybe be a little careful or you think you maybe need to do this? No, 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 not a problem, not a problem. So he kept on doing what he was doing and my predecessor was young, he was in his 20s and said, you know, Tom, are you, are you really sure that this is safe? Are you really sure that maybe you should do it this way? And Tom, no, 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 not a problem, not a problem. Well, as the story goes, Tom sawed off his pinky on the work site that day. Significant underestimation of the problem. <laughs> but get ready, here comes the undervaluing of the solution. So uh, my predecessor had been a, a medic, he'd been an EMT, and he was trained on this kind of thing. 
And so he saw you know, the kind of cut that it was, and sorry to be gross, he got the finger and you know, preserved it in the way that he needed to, and this was a you know, kind of situation where they could go to the hospital and they could have it uh, sewed on. And he said, Tom, we got to get to the hospital right now. Like, we can get your finger attached, but we're going to have to move right now. Tom says, you know, I don't like doctors. I don't, I don't like hospitals. I'm 75 years old. I'll just figure out, I'll just live without a finger. And that's what Tom did. Significant underestimation of both the problem and undervaluing of the solution. In 1518, in this Heidelberg Disputation, Martin Luther said, Crux sola est nostra theologica, which means the, the cross alone is our theology. When your parents pay a fortune for you to major in Latin in college, you have to use Latin every now and then to justify all that money. But what Luther was saying is that the cross is at the center of truth. It's at the center of the Christian faith, and it's at the center of the Christian life. Ephesians 2 takes us into the center of the cross. Jack Miller, who was an author and a, a theologian and was a primary influence on, on Tim Keller and a number of pastors, he summed up the gospel with these words. He said, cheer up. Your sin is far greater than you ever dared imagine, but you are far more loved than you ever dared to dream. And Ephesians 2 validates this definition. It shows us just how significant our problem with sin is. And secondly, it shows us just how great the love of God is. So in this conversation about underestimating problems and undervaluing solutions in our lives, the cross is the great regulator. The human tendency that is most destructive is for us to underestimate the depth of our sin, to underestimate the potential of our sin, and simultaneously to undervalue our greatest hope in the love of God. And so today I want to look at how the cross shapes us in two parts. First, the biggest problem, and second, the greatest hope. Today what we'll see is that living in the tension of the cross, both in seeing uh, our sin as our greatest problem through the cross, and seeing the love of God as our greatest hope in the cross transforms us into people who emit the aroma of Christ more and more and who love Jesus more and more. So first, the biggest problem. 1985 in Western Colombia, there was a very large volcano called Nevada del Ruiz that had been dormant for 65 years. And in September of 85, it started to emit ash and gas. And so volcano experts came and they studied the volcano. They went to the Colombian government and they said, there's some real danger. Uh, we, we, we need to pay attention to this. We very well may need to evacuate the region, particularly the town of Amaro, which had about 28,000 people in it. The government said, no, we don't, we don't think it's a big enough problem. We, we're not really ready to take on the economic cost that, that would take. Amero is too far away from the volcano. We, we really don't think this is something that we need to do. On November the 13th, 1985, the volcano started to emit more ash and more gas. 
And uh, the people started to go to the authorities, to the police, to the fire departments, and say, do, do we need to get out of here? Is this a problem? They said, no, no, not a problem. Everything is fine. They sent out uh, messages on the radio saying, don't need to worry, don't need to evacuate, stay put. Well, around 9.30 that night, a surge of pyroclastic flow began to pour out of the volcano. What, what this means is that a combination of water and mud and rocks and volcanic matter formed a wave that was 30 feet high. It started to flow through the river valleys and particularly through the one that led into Amero. Within two hours, 85% of the land area of the town was under mud. Within, uh, within an hour, 20,000 of the 28,000 citizens were dead and another 3,000 died later. There were warnings, there was information, but they underestimated the problem. And the results are, were catastrophic. And in the cross and in God's word, we see similar warnings about our own sin. And we see that here in verses one through three. Verse one says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So Paul is saying is that we were spiritually dead before Jesus came and revived us by his grace. This is not a, a Tylenol type problem. This is a CPR caliber problem. Verse 2, And whence you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So this is saying that before Jesus was our Lord, that we followed Satan. We followed the prince of the air. And a hard pill to swallow is, is that it is more natural for us to walk in the ways of darkness than it is for us to walk in the ways of God's law. Not an ibuprofen problem. This is a heart transplant problem. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So this language of passions in the flesh, it, it has connotations of sensuality and licentiousness. And we see in the world today in commercials and movie and television and social media, just all of the trash, all of the garbage, all of the, the celebration of sin that is out there. But I hate to say that, but so many of, of those horrible things that we see in the world, th those are appetites that I feel in my flesh every day. Not a Robitussin problem, a chemotherapy caliber problem. So continuing in verse 3, last phrase here of the section, it says that we were by nature children of wrath. So this is the worst of the worst. We lived under the judgment of God before Jesus rescued us and brought us under the grace of God. Not a Band-Aid caliber problem, a defibrillator caliber problem. And so when we look at the cross daily, it tells us that our problem with sin is so great that God Almighty himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, would have to come down from heaven live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sins. That is not a small problem. That is a God-sized problem. So at this point, you're probably thinking, why in the world did Wayne invite this guy to come to my church? Why did I take off work to get all this bad news? Well, I want to tell you that owning this and, and, and accepting this is actually one of the most liberating and freeing things that you can do in your life. First off, when we look at the cross, it reminds us of our sin, but it also reminds us that Jesus has paid for our sin. That's in the past. Secondly, 
we tend to think of all the problems that are out there in our life. We tend to fixate on problems with the government, problems with society, and in the culture, and the far left, and the far right, and problems with your in-laws, problems with your kids, problems with your spouse. We tend to naturally look outside ourselves to problems out there. And that is one of the most miserable experiences you can have, to be fixated on all the problems out there. You, you want a, uh, a recipe for misery. Sit in front of cable TV for several hours a day. Sit in front of social media for several hours a day and, and let those things work you up, get you riled up about things that we have no control over. The reason it makes us so miserable is yes, those things are true in the world, but we have absolutely no control over them. Paul David Tripp said, you'll never be free until you realize that your own sin is your biggest problem and God's grace is your only hope. And so the cross forces us to focus on our own sin. It focuses us into the domain in which we have control. There's a saying in AA that says, if there's a disturbance in me, it's either something that I'm doing or something that I'm not doing. And it is incredibly empowering to actually do inventory and to focus on our own sin with the Holy Spirit and in relationship with Christ. The pathway to freedom is for all the problems that are out there to trust Jesus with those problems, to pray for those problems, but to spend more time focusing on the problems that are in here. So the cross helps us to have an accurate appraisal of the central problem in our life, our own sin. But equally important is the cross's reminder of the grace of God. And that takes us to our second point, our greatest hope. Now, underestimating solutions can be just as big of a problem as underestimating problems. Uh, sorry, undervaluing solutions can be just as big a problem as underestimating problems. When the Titanic, the unsinkable ship, sailed in 1912, there were 22 passengers on board. And they had capacity for 48 lifeboats, but they only took 20. 48 lifeboats would be able to rescue 2,600 people, 400 more than there was on the ship, but 20 could only rescue 1,100 people. So when the ship sank, there were 1,500 people who lost their lives. They undervalued a simple solution, having enough lifeboats. So there is so much hard, hard news in verses 1 through 3 but there is so much hope in verses 4 through 9, and it all flows out of the cross. Verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, if Paul were a student in Gail Moby's class, there'd be red ink all over this, sermon, oh, this sentence because of all the redundancy. He talks about being rich in mercy because of great love with which he loved us. He's repeating himself, right? But he's doing this to emphasize that it is the love of God that is driving the coming of Jesus. A lot of times uh, we tend to think that God was either upset with us or indifferent towards us. And then he sent Jesus. And Jesus died for our sins and he was risen and now God loves us. We think that God loves us because Jesus saved us. But in reality, Jesus saved us because God loves us. It was God's love for us at our worst that moved him, moved him to send Jesus. Verse 5, even, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here is the core of the gospel. Sometimes people will define the gospel as God loves you. That, that, is, a, that is a pitiful definition of the gospel because it does not tap into the fact that his grace for us is undeserved. We don't deserve it, but he loves us, and out of the generosity that flows from the cross, he bestows it upon us. Verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's uh, love in the cross is not just getting us off the hook. I think that for a lot of my life, I thought of the gospel as I was a criminal and I was brought before the judge and Jesus acquitted me. I was off the hook. I wasn't going to go to hell, but now I just go on my merry way. That's a lot of times how we tend to think of the gospel, that that Jesus just came to, to get us off the hook. In reality, in the gospel, Jesus is our prize. Jesus is the prize that we gain. But in the gospel, we are God the Father's prize. We are God the Father's prize. We are his treasure. The hymn, How Great the Father's Love for Us, says it. It says, How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. His treasure. That is the view that God the Father has for you and me. So when we make the cross the center of our lives, when we live in this rhythm of seeing our own sin as our biggest problem and seeing God's grace as our greatest hope, a couple of things start to happen in our lives. And the first thing that happens is that the Lord starts to shape our attitude. He starts to change into what I like to call a gospel attitude of gratitude, humility, and compassion. When we see that all that we have in life is a gift, it's all a gift. We, we haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. The fact that we're alive, the blessings of this life, and all the spiritual blessings that come to us through Christ, they are all a gift from the Lord. And that makes us grateful. That gives us a grateful heart. Secondly, when we think that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross, that humbles us. It makes us realize we are not better than anybody else. It is a miserable place to live with a sense of judgment and a sense of superiority. It's not a fun place to be, but it is a life-giving and a content place to live with a sense of humility, of realizing that we are no better than anybody else. And then finally, it makes us compassionate. Uh, the key phrase here in verse 3, it says, like the rest of mankind. We were sinners like the rest of mankind. When the cross really has a grip on your life, when it is, it is ruling in your heart, when you see people who are struggling, you see people who are making mistakes, your tendency is not to judge them and condemn them, but instead your tendency is to say, I get it, I'm just like you. And compassion wells up in your heart. And so, with that being said, the cross starts to shape our attitude. The second thing that the cross does is that it engenders an affection for the person of Jesus and our Christ, which is life transforming. Here is the hard pill to swallow, but here is the glory of the cross. All of those bad things that we talked about in verses 1 through 3, all of those things come true of Jesus on the cross. 
On the cross, Jesus is dead. He dies in our place. On the cross, Jesus is counted as one who walks in darkness. On the cross, he experiences all the spiritual consequences of all the, the sins of the flesh and the sensuality that all of God's people have engaged in. He owns the consequence for that as if he did it. And worst of all, on the cross, Jesus becomes a child of wrath. He falls under the judgment of God. Why is it that Jesus puts himself in this position? Why is it that he absorbs all of these things? He does it because your life, your soul, your salvation is that important to God the Father. And when we live in this reality, it cultivates us a love and an affection and a loyalty to the Lord Jesus. May the Holy Spirit ever increase in us an adoration for the Lord Jesus Christ through you to the cross. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your hymnal once again and turn to page 185. Today we will sing stanza two only of the old rugged cross. Thank you. Appreciate that word. It's a word that all of us um, need to hear often. So may it be the case that we would treasure Christ more and that we would live and love in a way that, that shows forth our love for him and the good news of the gospel for, for all people. Um, I'm going to return thanks for our food and do a benediction here at the end. We would love for you to join us for lunch if you can. Just follow the crowd down to Heritage Hall where we'll gather around the tables, and we hope that you can join us there. I invite you if you would to pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the great love that you have for us and for the way that you've shown it to us so clearly on the cross. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be humble people, that we would look inward at our own hearts and problems before we're quick to look outward at the world and other people's problems, and that you would help us to believe that you love us the way that you do, and that you would help us to extend that love and grace and kindness to others, that you would... Um, 
Use us through our words, through our lives, to show forth the good news of the gospel. We thank you for this food that we're going to enjoy. We pray that you bless the hands of those who planned for it and prepared it, and that we would um, have fellowship around the tables that we honor unto you. We offer this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Good job. Thank you. I feel like you sounded fine to me. Uh, thank okay you. Okay, doing it? Yeah. Yeah.